Well, the United States and the UK, get this, they are both considering recognizing Palestine as its own state. Can you believe this? There is talk about bestowing official statehood on the Palestinians. That is messed up. That's disgraceful. On October 7th, nobody was discussing a state of Palestine, recognizing and declaring a Palestinian state unilaterally. That was off the table. That was not a discussion. Then they go and they torture and they murder Rahman al-Islam. Rahman al-Islam, they murder thousands of Jews and torture, take hundreds of hostages. And now suddenly President Biden wants to reward them by giving them statehood. All right. So we are going to spend a lot of time today later on discussing the war in Gaza Uh, A member of the squad says that Walgreens is racist. Walgreens, the pharmacy company, is racist because they shut down a store that was located in a black neighborhood. You cannot make this stuff up. Ayanna Presley said this. The reason that they shut down the store, the Walgreens, is because they were losing money. They were hemorrhaging money because of all the shoplifting. Ayanna Presley the squad member, she said they're closed in in Roxbury near Boston and Massachusetts. That is in her district, and it's predominantly black and Latino neighborhood. So she says that they are this is racial discrimination against brown and black communities. You cannot make this stuff up. This is like it, it was the shoplifting. It was they were losing money. They're a company. They need to profit. Okay, they cannot they cannot function. And when they're getting at a loss, at a net loss, because people are stealing and not paying for their stuff. It's like this, right? It's like, imagine if you live in a neighborhood with a bunch of minorities. Okay, let's just talk about Asians so that we don't get too controversial. Okay, so these Asians, they come into your house. They're, they live on your block. They come into your house and they steal things and they take things out of your house uh, without your permission. So you lock the door or you move away to a different neighborhood and they say, well, you're a racist because what you should stay in that house and you should let them steal from you. And the fact that you're not, you're obviously a bigot against Asians. Okay, it's a pretty basic business model. People come in if they pay for the shampoo, for the toothpaste, for the for the AirPods, you stay open. Your store stays open. But if people steal it, if they shoplift, if they leave without paying and then they don't get arrested, so they keep on doing coming back for more and you're not even allowed to prosecute below a certain uh, amount of money in, in, in woke Massachusetts, uh, you have to shut your store down because you're not profitable. It's a pretty conventional, traditional business model. But it's, if it's a black community, then apparently you have a moral obligation to lose the money. So, and, and so here's the thing. Wal- Walgreens is like expected to be a not-for-profit charity. Ayanna Presley made these comments on the House floor, on the floor of Congress, because they literally closed one down in her district. Quote, quote when a Walgreens leaves the neighborhood, they disrupt the entire community. They take baby formula diapers, inhalers, and life-saving saving medications. Why was there, this is Ayanna Presley, why was there no community input, no adequate notice to customers? So, like, Walgreens is supposed to call up all their customers before they close down and say, by the way, you know, we want to give you notice here. We have three months notice. We're advanced. So we're going to be shutting down, but we want you to, we don't want you to be left without shampoo. And, you know, you keep stealing the shampoo, so I guess you're going to have to find a different store to steal things from. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. And remember, look, at least the liberals should be happy that there's, there is baby formula in Walgreens because there was a time not so long ago, thanks to President Biden, that you could not find baby formula anywhere. Uh, all right, New York City has passed a bill which makes it nearly impossible for the police to do their job. And you know how you know how radical this bill is? Because Mayor Adams vetoed the bill. Mayor Adams quite radical leftist, okay? Pretty woke. And he vetoed the bill. And I understand he's a former police officer, so he sides with the police officers, but uh, I'm sorry. This is a very radical. They overrode the veto, the city council. 
It's called the How Many Stops Act, and it forces police to essentially document every single interaction they have. Every interaction they have in the line of duty, obviously it's any police interaction, it's not if they buy a cup of coffee. Although for police, NYPD officers, I think buying a cup of coffee is like officially part of their responsibilities. I don't think you're legally allowed to be a cop if if you don't purchase at least like two coffees and, and a dozen donuts every single day. So maybe they have to dock purchased a dozen donuts, you know, that has to be in your police report at the end of the day, or else they, you, you get, like, they dock your pay. But this is this is so, it, it's just unconscionable, okay? Uh, every time a cop sneezes, it's, uh, they, they pretty much have to write a report. By the way, they've already been inundated with paperwork for years. This is already an ongoing issue. It's a very big problem. And public advocate Jermani Williams, who's a very, very radical leftist, he's the bill's co- Sponsor, okay. He he he's 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 talking about how this is a very good thing because it's going to keep the police accountable, as though they don't keep the police accountable. The police are the bad guys. They're targeting the police. They want to make their lives miserable. They despise the police. So they want. And and what is this really all about? They want to make the cops avoid making traffic stops, avoid stop and frisk, avoid questioning suspects. What this is really about? It's it's Stoyman Amira. It is Stoyman Amira. They want the police. The police are the bad guys. And the police are sitting there, endangering their lives, taking risks every day, putting their lives in harm's way. Why? They, because they want to prevent crime. And this is about forcing the police. They see somebody suspicious. They see somebody driving in a suspicious vehicle, whatever. Uh, we're not going to go and stop them because then it means extra paperwork. We have to write up another report. And who wants to do that? So they're just going to avoid catching the bad guys. Um, meanwhile, this past weekend, it, they're so anti-cop. This past weekend, seven illegals in Manhattan beat up two police officers. They literally beat them, and they were the police officers were just trying to stop a disruptive person, and they, these were illegals. And this was caught on video. They were arrested, and then they were promptly released with no bail. These They literally, these illegals, beat up police officers, were caught on video, were subsequently arrested, and then released without bail. Imagine the morale. Then they wonder why all these police in New York City are retiring and they can't replace them. And they're so anti-cop. It's the it's all the same mentality. Okay, the laws are designed in these cities to promote anarchy. And here's the law, the, the specifics for every single traffic stop or every single time there's a police interaction. They need to write down the race, ethnicity, gender, and age of any person they speak to. All the people they speak to involved. They need to write down the reason for the encounter. They need to record whether a summons was issued or an arrest was made, and whether there was any use of force, among other uh, tedious details. Mayor Adams says. It's, he, and by the way, Adam says that he agrees with the spirit of the law. So he actually said that he agrees with the spirit of the law. What he's trying to say is, you know, because he wants the, the Democrats in New York City, Democrat voters to support him. So he can't come out right, outright against the bill, even though he vetoed it. So he says, yeah, in theory, it's a good idea. But if you talk to a thousand people, that's 3000 extra minutes. That's 49 hours. That is two full days of your life. All right. And imagine if your own life, if you needed to like write down every single interaction. OK, I mean, you would quit like you, you'd, you'd have as few interactions as possible. Uh, billionaire Mark Cuban has admitted that he broke the law by using racist hiring practices. Mark Cuban has been defending DEI, which is hiring based on race, hiring based on gender and skin color. And according to a government official, Mark Cuban actually broke the law. This is fascinating uh, because he admitted to hiring using illegal practices, hiring based on skin color, which is illegal. We will get to that coming up. People are furious at the attorney general of Washington, D.C., the local AG of Washington, D.C., not to be confused with Merrick Garland, but the local 
leftist, liberal, radical, woke AG of Washington, D.C., because crime in D.C., Washington, D.C., is totally, totally out of control. And people are furious. And the AG said back, he said, well, we cannot prosecute and our, and arrest our way out of this. He says, crime is such a mess. What do you expect us to do? We can't just prosecute our way out of this. You can't arrest our way out of this. I mean, it, uh, it, it's ludicrous. It is ludicrous. They, you, here you go and you create this massive crime spree. I said this, they, they have a dashboard to check the carjacking rate. Every day in Washington, D.C., you could check how many uh, cars were carjacked that day, how many people were carjacked. They have their own dashboard. It's a carjacking dashboard. If I ever live in a city where it has its own carjacking dashboard, they literally track. You know how, like, like you'll have a dashboard, it'll track, like, you know, how many uh, whatever happened that day. You'll have stock dashboards and other dashboards. All right, we'll track. I mean, well, what happened in your city today? Oh, well, there were seven attempted carjackings and three at gunpoint today in Washington, D.C. There's a dashboard for it. It's insane. Get me out of that city. So I'm not that I'm in that city, but I'm saying. So, so uh, they create a crime spree, and then you say, well, there's a massive crime spree. It's out of control. People cannot live normal. You have Congress people, literally, literally, members of Congress getting carjacked at gunpoint. And they say, well, you want, what do you want me to do? I should prosecute my way out of this mess? What, like, what are you, a racist? These poor criminals, they come from broken homes. They were abused. Like, where's your sense of compassion? Yes, that's exactly your job is to, number one, yes, that is how you prevent crime. You, pro, you expect us to prosecute our way? Yes. You, the way you get out of this mess is by prosecuting criminals, putting them in jail. It's not rocket science. Arrest the thugs, put them in prison, keep them in prison without bail, rinse, repeat. Okay. And that's number one is that, yes, it works. And Rudy Giuliani proved that it worked in the nineties. They said it could not be done. New York City could never be cleaned up. And Rudy Giuliani, not only did he clean up the city, he revamped New York City. People thought it could, it was impossible. David Dinkins left the city in shambles. Giuliani totally cleaned it up, and then he taught other cities. So it like literally had this effect. I always say, Giuliani, they call him America's mayor. Now it's all forgotten because of all the election fraud stuff. He's gotten a bad name. But Giuliani, uh, he revolutionized the whole concept of crime fighting in these big urban cities. And he, and he literally changed the whole country mindset for, for a long period of time. And Bloomberg kept it up until it was erased under de Blasio. So, but number two, this, this attorney general... Your whole job is to prosecute criminals. That is your job description. You, nobody, it doesn't say anywhere you should decide. Obviously, you have to abide by the law. But your, it's not like your job is to write the law and say, well, this person committed a crime, but I'm not going to prosecute him because I have compassion. That's absurd. That's not your job. You have to, it is your duty to prosecute somebody if they're guilty. Now, the judge and the jury can then go decide if they're guilty. That's not your job. Just like the, the, the defense lawyer, is th their job is presumably to defend criminals, even though sometimes I think it's very shaky to justify defending certain criminals. But it's not like, well, I don't think this works, or I do think it irrelevant. It, you, your job is to prosecute, period. You're not supposed to think, should I, should I not? Now imagine a waiter in a restaurant, right? Imagine if a waiter in a restaurant decides that it's immoral to serve customers red meat. You know, it it, it could be harmful. It could be unhealthy to serve them red meat. So like, Customers ask for red meat, and he brings them broccoli. What do you think is going to happen? He's going to get fired. But what do you mean? How could he bring them something that he thinks is unhealthy? So don't bring it. So quit your job. Find another job. But you can't sit there and say, it's just not, not going to work. Your job is, to, aside from the fact that it's the right thing to do, and it's the morally upstanding thing when somebody's a criminal, to prosecute them, and yes, to uphold the law, but it's all, it also happens to be your job description, these, these, these woke AGs and these woke uh, DAs that have been put into place by Soros. 
And uh, like I said, crime will evaporate. Giuliani did it. And, and by the way, another amazing part, and they never talk about this, the liberals, is 80% of the crime in most of the, Bernard Carrigo, he says this in, in, in New York City and most of these other cities, 80% of the crime is done by about 10 to 15% of the popu- uh, uh, of the of the population. And not of the population, of the criminals. In other words, uh, there's a lot of repeat criminals. In other words, uh, 80% of the crime is done by about the same 1000 people. So like let's say there are like 10,000 criminals, right, committing different crimes, but a 1000 of those criminals are 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 just committing repeat crimes over and over again. So 80% of the crime is done by the same 1,000 or 2,000 or 2,500 people. If you would arrest in New York City about 3,000 criminals and keep them in jail, a specific 3,000, I mean, you will eliminate 80% of violent crime. But, you know, Alvin Bragg, he's too busy indicting President Trump over nonsense to, to prosecute carjackers and prosecute violent criminals. All right, so meanwhile, President Biden is headed to East Palestine. Oh, well, that's great. Congratulations, President Biden. Finally going to East Palestine. He's going there to celebrate officially. We'll explain why, but he's going there to celebrate. The, it's the one year anniversary. Celebrate is just a very, the, not, not uh, apropos term, but he's going there, I guess, to commemorate or to mark the one year anniversary of the horrific, horrific train derailment, which caused explosions and caused all, caused all sorts of toxic chemicals to be released in the air. It was just a, a, a nightmare, just a nightmare scenario. And Biden was, MIA. He was nowhere to be found. Biden did not show up. He never, ever visited East Palestine. Trump went there a few days after it took place. Biden never went, and which was a disgrace. And now, one year later, by the way, it's like embarrassing, almost. It's humiliating. They don't want him. The, the, the mayor of, we'll read you his quotes. The mayor of East Palestine basically said, why is he coming? Like, what, what's he going to do for us here now? Thanks a lot. You know, too little, too late. But the fact that you're marking the one year, you're basically like announcing like you're like people. Some people forgot about this. Not the people of East Palestine, but a lot of the country, you know, have other things on their mind. And oh, well, Biden's coming to East Palestine. Well, why? Because it's been a year. Okay, so he hasn't shown up in a year. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look at me. I have not shown up this entire year. Now I'm finally showing up. But here's the big question. Is And remember, Trump literally showed up just a few days later and made a big appearance. And a lot of people looked at that as the moment where he basically started his campaign. OK, basically, uh, he, you know, he uh, his resurgence. And here's the thing. Why is Biden suddenly waking up now? It, it, you, you could say, well, maybe he read the map and he said, oh, we should visit Palestine because he wants to recognize the state of Palestine. And he thought East Palestine, Ohio must be the state of Palestine. No, that's actually not why. You know, and he, he wants a ceasefire or whatever. But no, that's not why. There's actually a reason that Biden has decided to go to East Palestine. We will explain that coming up. A listener reminded me that President Trump, we, we discussed last time that some Republicans oppose early voting, but I wasn't clear on which. A, a listener asked me about this. He said, why do Republicans oppose early voting? What's wrong with early voting? Now, I think it's debatable. I think, you know, the listener reminded me that I, at one point, questioned early voting. This is a while, a while ago. And yeah, he says that Trump actually at one point slammed the concept of early voting and said, you have election day, that's it. Now, I understand it's definitely not a strong argument whether, you know, I think you can make a case why early voting, I think we'd all agree, a two-month early voting, there, there's some point where it's just too long. So then the question, all right, well, how long? A week, two weeks? So we could debate it, but the, the listener is definitely correct that as a talking point, it's a pretty weak talking point. Just It's just not the way to go. Talk about voter ID, talk about universal mail-in ballots. Let's avoid the talk of the criticism of early voting. That's fine. But uh, he does remind me that Trump at one point did uh, criticize early voting. So thank you for that. A listener asked me about Kevin McCarthy, you know, because we, we're talking about VP. A lot of people are talking about all right, who's Trump's uh, running mate going to be. 
uh, now that essentially everybody realizes what we've known for quite a while, that Trump is uh, the, the nominee, the Republican nominee. I don't know how soon he picks a running mate, probably not that soon, but it is a fascinating thing to discuss. And I, I, I've mentioned Kevin McCarthy multiple times. At one point, I thought that he's a shoo in. You know, I think McCarthy, he has mentioned that he would love to have a role in Trump's campaign and, and a Trump administration. And McCarthy's been very loyal to Trump. He also could attract certain voters who might be turned off by Trump, certain moderate voters, leftist Nikki Haley voters, you know, who can't stand Biden, but get they have a distaste. They don't like nasty tweets and they don't like Trump, you know, little rocket man and that kind of stuff. Uh, they don't like Trump's demeanor. So Kevin McCarthy is considered a much more straight type of figure. You know, he's considered somebody with a very uh, calm you know, much more like a politician, like a typical, I don't mean like a swampy politician, but just uh, much more, I guess, mild-mannered, you know. And uh, so it's pretty interesting. Now, the caller said to me, I, I think McCarthy is a, I think he'd be a great, great pick for running mate. And I've had my issues with McCarthy, but nothing major. And I think he'd be a good choice. I'm not convinced that Trump's going to choose him. But uh, the caller said, is Kevin McCarthy, is he too moderate? Like, are, are some MAGA voters going to be turned off by McCarthy. Number one, you know, I think Trump, other than choosing Liz Cheney, I don't, I, if somebody's MAGA, they're voting for Trump. I don't care who his running mate is. I mean, if, if his running mate is uh, Kim Jong-un, you know, if his running mate is uh, Vladimir Putin, I, you know, Raul Castro in Cuba. I, I don't know if he's still alive, but uh, somebody like that, I, I, they would still vote for Trump. But uh, no, I don't think Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy, he always managed to toe the line. He always managed to never go too far to the left. He, you know, he somehow, he, he really did a very masterful job, I always thought, of towing the line, not going too far in either direction, keeping, and I know eventually it got fractured. So that's, and he's also a fundraising machine. I think he could actually raise a lot of money. So that's a really interesting pick. Uh, a different caller asked me, people have asked me about this in the past. Uh, is it true that Trump and Ron DeSantis uh, cannot both run? If, if, if Trump and another Floridian, because Trump is officially a resident of Florida. He moved out of New York. Uh, lucky, luckily for him. So Trump and DeSantis both having home state in Florida, if they're both on the ticket together, then somehow that's, there's a technical loophole where they erase each other's electoral votes. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be able, Florida would be out of the picture. They could not get, uh, the, the Florida electoral votes. If, if, if both the, the president, presidential candidate and the VP are both from the same state, then that knocks out, that state's out of play. So and, and it could Trump then, does that, uh, erase, negate the option of Trump choosing DeSantis, yes and no. Certainly Trump would not choose DeSantis if it meant they're obviously not going to give up Florida. Florida's huge. Florida's pivotal. But the idea would be that one of them would have to officially move out of the state. Trump used to live in New York. He could theoretically move back in New York. He has, to New York, he has Trump Tower, right? He's got a residence there, so he could work it out. You know, But the, uh, would Trump want to do that? Probably not, but if he felt that DeSantis was the best choice, it, it could be worked out. But no, if you want to know, is he going to choose DeSantis, but they both have official residence in Florida and forfeit the electoral votes? Certainly not. All right, Lloyd Austin has apologized, the defense secretary. He took full responsibility. Here we are so many weeks later, and troops have been under attack. There's there's this war zone going on in the Middle East that Lloyd Austin was MIA. He just disappeared, didn't bother to tell anybody, including including the president of the United States, and Lloyd Austin now, he says, I take full responsibility. I was wrong. I should have told the, informed the president, should have informed the public. He should have informed the staff. 
Give me a break. He took no responsibility. It's empty words. It's so easy to get up there and apologize after the fact and say, oh, I accept full responsibility. Well, what are you going to do? What, 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 what punishment, what consequences are you going to suffer? Or how do you make it up? How do you make it up to the troops that you left in harm's way? Uh, I'm sorry, but, you know, they just apologize, they move on, and the whole thing is forgotten. Nobody ever actually has any culpability. Nobody ever suffers any consequences. Certainly nobody ever gets fired over these over these debacles. And he disappeared for days, he didn't tell anybody. And the only thing I agree with Lloyd Austin about, he said, he said there was no lack of leadership. He says, he says that the, during that week that he was missing, and that, by the way, he didn't even bother to tell his deputy, so his deputy's on vacation, so there's nobody in charge. He says there was no lack of leadership at that point. I Actually, that's the one thing I agree with him about, because there was no leadership to begin with, because even when he's there, there's no leadership. So, yeah, I agree. Him not being there did not create any vacuum or any void in the leadership. And you know what? You know the proof? Look at the Afghanistan pullout. The 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 disastrous, the catastrophic pullout from Afghanistan, which, of course, turned into a horror show and the terror attack. Oh, it's just uh, and and then they went and they attacked that poor man with the kids who they thought that he was a terrorist. This is Afghani. They were tracking as a retaliation. It was bogus. It was just they needed to do some sort of response because there was a terror attack at the airport as as uh, Americans were evacuating. So they needed a response. So they found somebody, zero evidence that he was, uh, and it turns out he was an innocent person. He was actually somebody who worked for one of these, like, uh, charity groups in, in Afghanistan helping the United States and helping Americans. And uh, and, and, and then they, they, they fired a rocket at him with a bunch of kids around. It was just, it was just, the whole story was just horrific. Sorry, sorry to bring up, the, you know, these negative things. But uh, that, that was all on Lloyd Austin. Lloyd Austin's the Secretary of Defense. And the Afghanistan pullout, leaving behind like 150, 200 million dollars worth of equipment and, 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 and weapons for the Taliban. And just, I mean, now Afghanistan is a, is, is just a total cesspool of terror right now. It's a total disaster. And a lot of that is on Lloyd Austin. He should have resigned then, but he's not going to be forced to resign. And, uh, it's egregious. Uh, a caller asked me, um, well, a listener made my day. I got to mention this. A listener left me a voicemail and uh, left me in a very good mood because here's what he told me. This listener has been listening for a long time. He's left me messages for a long time. So, you know, he's somebody I'm very thrilled and flattered to have him on board. He's been listening probably, you know, almost from day one for six or seven years. And I think I could say, he, you know, he's, he's, he was a, he, he was a Koilo, uh younger man, and then he became a Rebbe. And that's all I'll say as far as any details about him. So I think that uh, could de- describe a lot of listeners of this show, hopefully. But, uh, but he's been, you know, somebody who's been a friend of the program for a long time. And we appreciate that very much. We appreciate everybody. You know, I have a personal relationship with some of you and anybody who listens. I love hearing your voicemails. It, it always gets me excited or getting your emails at josh at vinnews.com, josh at vinnews.com. So it's very exciting. The fact that there are people out there, listeners out there who appreciate what we're doing is always something which we're, we're humbled by and it's very, you know, it's appreciated. We, 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 it's great to feel that we're making a difference, that we're contributing to your day in some, in some fashion. I don't want to overdo it. I, you know, I understand, you know, that's not like, you know, although there is one, one person who leaves me messages saying sometimes, you know, he won't eat lunch until, uh, it used to be when the show was every day. He would literally not eat lunch until the show was up. So it's pretty funny. I keep getting these messages from him saying, if he skipped lunch now, he'd have to skip it for two or three days sometimes, so he has to eat, but he doesn't want to, so I appreciate that. But this listener, who's been listening for quite a long time, 
He leaves me a voicemail and he says that his mother said to him, oh, you know, you're not going to believe this. I discovered a show, a political talk show, and I like it. You know, it's, it's, it, it, I find it really interesting and, 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 and I find it exactly what I need. And he says, she says, it's this, it's this guy, Yaakov, Yaakov M. And he says, oh, you're not going to believe this. Like she, she, and she listens on Vin News. Okay. He listens on VIN News. He, he, he listens on the hotline for years. And he says to her, oh yeah, like, I think I mentioned him to you once, this Yaakov. I, you know, I, I, I listened to Yaakov. I've been listening to Yaakov for a long time. And she discovered him, you know, so apparently he mentioned it once, but she, you know, she didn't really, pay attention or was on a hotline or wasn't on VIN then. So, you know, she didn't uh, think much of it. And then she goes and discovers it. So they're both listening to the same show. So, uh, you know, and she kind of tells him, oh, wow, I discovered this thing. You're not going to believe it. You know, maybe try it. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I've been listening for quite a while. Something like that. If they're listening right now, I might have gotten some details wrong, but you get the basic gist. So, you know, it, it's exciting for on a number of levels. I don't want to overstate this. But number one, it's good to know, you know, on VIN, VIN News, there's much less engagement in terms of, you know, the hotline. Uh, people leave messages all the time, as you know, but VIN is not really the way to leave a message. You have to send me an email. So we do, Baruch Hashem, we see the numbers. It's growing. We're happy. But I never really get a good feel. Are there real humans? Are there real people actually listening to VIN? It turns out there are real people listening to Sean VIN. Hopefully, it'll even keep growing. That would be nice. So great to hear. Number two, you know, he said he said that it sounded like, that his his mother and thank you so much for being there and for discovering us and for appreciating what we do. Uh, you know, it sounded like she liked the fact that we kind of it it she she gets to kind of hear everything that go you know catch or get a get a good rundown of the stories of the day in you know kind of not too long drawn out way kind of a quick rundown of a bunch of the stories that happened throughout the week so it sounded like that was something she appreciated which is as you many of you know that's one of the things we really try to do here keep it substantive keep it moving uh not get into these tangents that i'm on right now you know but uh just kind of just give you a rundown of things that matter to you and it's, look you know obviously i'm not talking about some uh, art art uh, exhibit in France or something like that. You know, you're not going to hear some, and we're not talking about a lot of the crime and a lot of the negative news out there. We're talking about politics. And it's like, these are the stories that I would want. If I was listening to a show, these are the stories that I would want to hear about. And we pretty much try to cover everything you're going to want to know. Obviously, there's going to be some things that we don't cover, but get through as much as we can, as quickly as we can, throw in some, you know, some some analysis, some twists and turns along the way. Hopefully it's a little bit entertaining and away we go. So I like that the kind of like she appreciated what we're trying to do and hopefully we do an okay job. It's always like this would be my dream if I could listen to a show myself. This is how it would be mostly. I could probably do a little bit better, but you know, hopefully for the most part it's good. So we, that, that was very, it was humbling. It, you know, it, it's nice to feel like we're delivering. It's a schuss. We get to deliver news and politics on a kosher platform. And if somebody out there appreciates it and we contribute, we make your life a little bit brighter. We make your day a little bit more enjoyable. And I do have to just mention on a personal note here that since I was a teenager, you know, I was, it was a dream of mine. I was like obsessed with talk radio and I always dreamed of hosting a show and I always dreamed of hosting a show on the radio and I did not pursue it. I was in yeshiva and I stayed in yeshiva and I did not pursue like any kind of radio career. I don't know if it would have happened or would not have happened, but then this came along, however exactly it evolved, and I was able to kind of do, you know, the microphone, it's a fix, it's a, it, it's an outlet for me, 
in a number of ways, but 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 it's an art form, and it's something that I love. And every moment, every moment that moment that I get to be on this microphone, I get to be sharing my thoughts with you. And I know that you're out there, and that you hopefully enjoy, appreciate it. Sometimes maybe I make you nuts. Sometimes you think, oh, what's he talking about? You leave me a voicemail, you know, telling me how crazy I am. It's all good. It's all part of the banter. It's all part of you know. It's thought provoking. I want us to hear each other. I want to be able to get you thinking, and uh, we can disagree, but we have to understand each other's points of view. I think that that's so crucial. I'm trying to convince anybody of anything, but it's just I just I just want to kind of provoke thought and uh, just give you you know uh, a, a perspective and share some stories that maybe you would not have been aware of and some analysis. And let's move on. But thank you both. Thank you all. The State Department, the UK, both considering recognizing a Palestinian state. So what happened over here? Here we go. Before Simchas Torah. What, there was no discussion of a Palestinian state. And then they go and they commit these atrocities, horrific atrocities, and reward them with their own state. It is disgraceful, okay? And, and, and you know, it's, uh, the, 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 the wild part is I said to myself, you know, and after the attacks happened, I said, what is Hamas doing? What is their end game? And you don't need to come up with a strategy because they're Hamas and, and they hate and all they want to do is murder, okay? All they want to do is destroy. So maybe there is no strategy. But I said, like, they're going to get dismantled. Like, this is going to be the end of Hamas. What's the leadership thinking? And I was, you know, because this is it. Like, they do this, and it's like, all right, well, that's their last shot. They take it, and then it's a suicide mission. Okay, maybe. But it was nagging at me, and I was so naive. I was so naive because this was ingenious on their part, because even if, you know, I, I never thought they would get dismantled. I always thought, and I still don't think, and hopefully I'm wrong, but I still think that Israel is going to be forced to, to, to cave in. I hope I'm wrong. But either way, it doesn't matter because the leadership is in Qatar. The leadership, they are safe in Qatar. They will rebuild. Whatever happens to Hamas in Gaza, Hamas exists. Hamas is alive and well. And I think that was their strategy all along was because they realized that the pressure on Israel, they would force Israel into a situation where Israel would respond correctly, justifiably. And now Israel is under enormous pressure, more than we could have ever imagined. And what's incredible is, remember, under Trump, the Palestinians, they were treated, discarded like animals, subhumans, they were forgotten, and then they go and they carry out this massive attack, and suddenly Hamas and the Palestinians have become the victims, suddenly half the world, uh, you know, a lot of the world uh, supports Israel, but a huge part of the world, they, 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 they sympathize with, with, with Hamas, and they view Israel as the monster. Uh, like, you know, Israel here victimized the second worst terror attack in history. And what, what you know, what a horrible abuse and torture and, and everything. And, and Israel's the monster. Israel's the monster. The monsters are the victims. It's surreal. And I think that was their game plan all along was, yes, they could sustain a huge, huge war in Gaza. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a two-state solution. Is it going to happen? I do not know. But here you have UNRWA. I mean, it is so sickening what's going on with UNRWA. You have John Kirby. By the way, John Kirby, who's basically giving a random pass on the... Uh, John Kirby was very careful. I'm shifting here for a second over here with, with, with the attack on U.S. soldiers. So Kirby said, uh, we're going to... Uh, we're going to retaliate against those responsible. So he was like really clear, as we alluded to earlier, we're going to retaliate against those who are responsible. Translation, we're going to retaliate against the proxy, but not against Iran per se. But, get, but getting back to this, Kirby said with UNRWA, and there's so much pressure now to refund, to restore funding to UNRWA. It's going to happen sooner than you think. You have Gutierrez. They're going to do some kind of fake cleanup job. This is what they're going to do. They're going to go in there. Oh, we cleaned house. We got rid of all. They're talking about thousands 
thousands, conservative estimates, 1,200 UNRWA employees are linked to terror. You're talking about thousands of terrorists. UNRWA is a terror group, period. And they're going to go in there. They're going to clean house. Oh, well, we weeded out the rotten apples. They're talking about rotten apples. Rotten apples. Somebody made a great point on Fox News. He said that, you know, they're using the exact same terminology with, 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 with defund the police, right? Remember BLM and defund the police. It was like, well, the police are good, which they are. It's just a few rotten apples. And remember what the leftists said. They said, well, you got to defund the whole police because if there's bad apples, rotten apples, that spoils the whole bunch. And now literally they're saying, oh, well, you want to defund UNRWA? It's just a few rotten apples. Literally saying the same terminology. Great point there, the hypocrisy. But again, John Kirby saying, don't let this impugn the good they do. Don't let all the good stuff. They're a terror group. There's no good that they do. You know, the, the, you have Gutierrez, head of the UN. Oh, UNRWA, all the humanitarian aid that they provide. How are you going to defund this? This is a crisis. And I hear, I hear people who are supposed to be reasonable people. I'm not talking about terror supporters. I'm not talking about these radicals who are going and uh, protesting pro Hamas. I'm talking about Washington Post reporters, leftists, liberals. But, you know, but, 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 but mainstream media people who are like, well, yeah, UNRWA, they're terrorists, but they're bringing food and supplies and aid to millions of children in Gaza. So how can you do this? How can you hurt the children? You can't do this to the children. So let's keep giving you, you, you're going to keep funding terrorism. You're going to keep funding terrorism because you think they give a few bucks to, which they don't. They don't. None of that money, as far as I'm concerned, there's no evidence that any of that money ever goes for any sort of humanitarian causes, but I don't even care if it does. If 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 if, if a, a small amount does, or a fraction of it does, or whatever, so it, it really is just egregious. And then you have uh, uh, Biden, and Biden, like I said, putting his own troops in harm's way. I have a question: How is Biden different than Vladimir Putin? You know, Biden throwing his troops under the bus here. You have U.S. troops who are killed, and they're doing nothing to protect them, even if there is some kind of token response. Uh, short of doing some heavy, massive response against Iran themselves, similar to what Trump did with uh, Qasem Soleimani. If you're going to j- just just do some token response, then you're literally encouraging even more attacks, and there, you've already been 159. So, tr- so Biden, that means that Biden is okay allowing U.S. troops to be killed and not doing anything to prevent it. You know, the, the, uh, you know Kirby keeps talking about, oh, we're going to hold them responsible. We're going to hold them accountable. It's not about responsible and accountable. Yeah, that's part of it. But it's about preventing future attacks. What about that? Nobody's even talking about, well, who's, who says it's not going to happen again? It's happened repeatedly with, 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 no, with, with no consequences. So how is Vladimir Putin, who goes and sends his troops, his Russian troops to Ukraine to be killed, how is that any different than Biden, who's allowing his troops to be killed? I mean, we all view Putin as evil. For doing what he's doing, and uh, so many Russian troops are in in, in harm's way. Uh, well, the answer is because Biden it's only three troops, so that's the that's the answer. They're doing the same thing, but it's just fewer numbers. Who knows? You know, Biden he has lots of troops right now that are in harm's way. He's not doing anything, as far as I'm concerned, to protect them from further attacks against Iran. So the numbers could theoretically get much higher. And same thing happened in Benghazi. You know, Obama and Hillary threw the ambassador under the bus. He had an ambassador in Benghazi begging for reinforcements, saying his life was in danger. They ignored it. He was killed, which was an act of war, and there was no retaliation. And by the way, Kirby refuses to say that it was an act of war, the Iranian attack, even though it was clearly an act of war. And then Obama lied about it, said it was a spontaneous protest. They were protesting some book that was anti-Islam. You know, so it's just incredible how the world... And by the way, UNRWA, I mean, like, we've been talking about it for years. The world has finally woken up, and still, these people are whining about how, look at all these kids. I mean, it's just so twisted. And this is what we have to remember is and I knew, and I said we'd spend some time on Israel over here and on the Gaza situation. 
we have to remember that, um, you know, Biden, okay, there's a difference between somebody doing the right thing because it's their values and policy and doing the right thing because they simply have no choice politically. Biden did not want to defund UNRWA, okay? If he wanted to defund UNRWA, he could have, he didn't have had to restore funding. He could have defunded UNRWA. Everybody knew. This is not a secret. David Friedman said everybody knew that UNRWA was uh, essentially a terror wing of Hamas, a terror agency. So uh, Biden, he doesn't want to alienate the Muslim voters. There are a lot of minority voters who, who, who are interested in Biden funding the Palestinian cause. Biden did not want to do this. He had no choice. All these countries, once the U.N. was faced with clear-cut evidence, irrefutable evidence, that they were involved in in, in the terror attack, in the Hamas, Simchas Torah, Shemini Atzeres terror attack, they were involved, employees, so they fired them. At that point, Biden and, and, and these countries had to defund. It's not because they wanted to, it's because they had to. When Biden allowed Israel to retaliate and didn't uh, prevent Israel, didn't pressure them, he did it because he had no choice, because what are you supposed to do? Israel had just been victimized by this hor- hor- horrific attack. So it's just, I give zero credit to Biden, zero credit. All right, moving on. The Chicago, Well, related, the Chicago City Council has passed a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Congratulations. The Chicago City Council, and as many have pointed out, you have a war zone. If Chicago is calling for a ceasefire, it should be in Chicago, in the south side. It should not be in Gaza. It's absurd. The whole thing is absurd. Uh, this is the largest city thus far. Many, many cities in America have called for a ceasefire. It's a totally meaningless, worthless uh, resolution. And uh, they're just trying to make a political statement. Um, it was a tie. It was, it was actually the vote was a tie. And leftist woke mayor Brandon Johnson cast a decisive vote. Um, it's symbolic. And 70 cities in the United States have adopted resolutions about the Israel war in Gaza, and the majority have called for a ceasefire. Listen to the staggering numbers here. This month alone, okay, January alone, 2024, Chicago has experienced 28 people shot to death, okay? That's nearly one per day. In 2023, there were 2,883 shooting victims in Chicago, 671 murders, which is two per day. So Chicago is ignoring its own war zone and trying to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. It's just, it, it, it's insane. It's it's insanity. And by the way, most of the victims in Chicago are these poor, innocent black children. That's the saddest part. And uh, their own leaders are doing nothing to help them because it doesn't advance their political narrative. NBC News is reporting that Biden is considering withholding weapons. Biden now considering withholding weapons from Israel and not withholding, like, it's not like a gift he's giving them free weapons. Israel is buying the weapons. There are purchases that Israel is making of U.S. weapons to help them in this war on Gaza. And according to NBC News, Biden wants to withhold the weapons as ordered in order to leverage and pressure Netanyahu to end the war. It's it's just egregious. Um, Israel keeps asking for weapons, including large aerial bombs, ammunition, and air defenses. And uh, Biden is considering withholding military equipment as a means of pressuring Israel to, into a ceasefire. They're saying only offensive weapons, not defensive weapons, but offensive weapons which could help Israel. The IDF has discovered a document in one of Sinwar's hideouts, Yaya Sinwar, the mastermind terrorist monster behind the attack. It appears to be instructions for psychological warfare, for maximizing psychological warfare against Israel. And this is really, really hard to even discuss, but it's very important. The IDF soldiers discovered a handwritten document in a strategic location, one of Sinwar's hideouts. And it has guidelines on disseminating photos and videos of Israeli hostages in order to create maximum psychological trauma and pressure on Israelis. In addition, it says continue influencing the Israeli public 
um, to, to convince them that Netanyahu bears responsibility for the terror attack and for the war in Gaza. Another guideline says it should cast doubt, they should try to cast doubt on the Israeli narrative that the war in Gaza is the best way to ensure the safe return of the hostages. So they're really trying to mess with people's minds and uh, carry out psychological warfare. Another vicious, vicious, horrific, and unfortunately effective. It is effective, the psychological trauma that they're putting all of us through. This is, it's all, it's by design, it's strategic, and it's really, really terrifying, I have to be honest, you know, because they're hitting on very, very sensitive chords here, obviously. All right, Biden will travel to East Palestine, Ohio, for the one-year um, commemoration uh, of the horrific train, train derailment. Why is he doing this? Biden did pledge last March that he would visit the area at some point. Uh, remember, Trump, 19 days after the explosion, Trump visited about a half mile away from the derailment site at a firehouse. Matt Vespa of townhall, of townhall.com, he nailed it. He says that uh, what happened was it's Trump country over there. It, these are not Biden voters. These these are Trump voters. And he says that Biden didn't gain anything politically by going. That's why Biden did not go. And by the way, Biden was a fool. This is not some kind of like natural disaster. Biden went to a bunch of natural disasters where there were Democrat voters. But here it's Republican voters. But this was a disaster caused by Pete Buttigieg and the Department of Transportation. They're responsible for this. This is a train derailment. This is this is a federal, uh, the, the, you know, the federal government is, is responsible. So, and that's Biden. But Biden at the time thought they had re-election in the bag. You know, they were much more, remember, the, the poll numbers were much stronger for Biden a year ago. They didn't think the economy would remain dismal, inflation at, at, at record levels, world on fire. So now that Biden is struggling, and especially Muslim voters, they, they're going to need the Rust Belt because of Muslim voters. This is what Town Hall points out. They're going to need the Rust Belt, the Biden administration, much more than they ever thought, the Biden campaign. So he's going there to campaign, doesn't care about these people, not when they're suffering, not when they're Trump voters and he takes them for granted. But now suddenly that he actually may need their votes. Now, suddenly he cares. Wow, it is late. Much more to get to. Our, well, I guess we'll end with um, Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban has admitted essentially to breaking the law using racist hiring practices to gain a competitive advantage. This is a federal official. This is unreal. This is like chilling that Mark Cuban, he's been boasting on Twitter. This is what they do is they're racists. These people are racist and racist against whites. And then they they brag about it. So Cuban has been bragging about DEI for weeks and defending it. And he wants to help make a profit. He That's what he claims is that it helps him profit. Hiring based on skin color. And and by the way, they're, they're probably going to be lawsuits. Cuban's probably going to get sued. But here they go and they scream about how we hire on the basis of skin color white people. And uh, we hire other whites and we, we, we discriminate against blacks. Totally not true. Hasn't happened in decades. And then they go and they hire black people on the basis of skin color, and they're so oblivious to the fact that they're the racists, and they boast about it. So this is a story from uh, an outlet called Outkick. I mean, I saw the tweets. The tweets are out there. But Cuban, he, he admitted he uses diversity as a competitive advantage. He admitted that he hires based on skin color, meaning he hires minorities. He's proud of it. He's proud of hiring based on skin color. So a government official, not just any government official, a commissioner for the U.S. Equal Opportunity uh, commission, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, somebody who literally, this is their, this is what they do, this is their expertise, this is what they, they're in charge of basically catching companies that hire using racist practices. So he responded to, to, to Cuban on Twitter, literally responded and said, you're violating the Title Seven law. He said, at M. Cuban, he literally tagged Mark Cuban on Twitter, EEOC commissioner here. Unfortunately, you're dead wrong on Title Seven law. As a general rule, race and gender cannot be a motivating factor or a tiebreaker, or a tipping point. Employers must understand the ground rules, essentially saying you cannot factor in, as we've always said, race and gender in any way. And yet Cuban admitted 
that he does it. Cuban admitted that he hires based on people's race and people's gender. He feels it gives him a competitive advantage. Why? Well, part of the reason is because investment firms like BlackRock and Vanguard judge companies whether they want to invest based on what they call ESG, environmental, social, and governance scores. Basically, they encourage companies to hire uh, candidates based on race. So diversity. So in other words, they will reward you. They'll invest in your company if you hire more minorities, which is disgraceful unto itself. The, the, the investment should be based on, it's not only disgraceful because it's racist, but it's disgraceful because what about your investors? Don't you have a responsibility to, to find the company that's most profitable? Remember all those banks that went under because they were using DEI practices? So, um, so, so Mark Cuban apparently breaking the law and admitting to it in, uh, to his millions of followers on Twitter. And finally, Oh, you can't believe this. An ex-manager of Boeing has revealed that he would never fly in a Boeing Max airplane. And a a former Boeing engineer tells travelers, avoid the Boeing Max airplane. These are executives of Boeing or an ex-manager of Boeing, whatever that means, and a former Boeing engineer. Okay, this is scary. Uh, I don't mean to scare people, but it's important. Ed Pearson, ex-Boeing senior manager, told the LA Times, quote, I would absolutely not fly a Max airplane. I've worked in the factory where they were built, and I saw the pressure employees were under to rush the planes out the door. I tried to get them to shut down before the first crash, end quote. Wow, chilling. Joe Jacobson, former Boeing and FAA engineer, told the LA Times, quote, I would tell my family to avoid the Max. I would tell everyone, really. The FAA announced uh, in uh, January 24th, January 24th, that the 737-9 MAX planes were clear to resume their service after being grounded following the uh, infamous Alaska Airlines incident on January 5th when a door panel blew off mid-flight 16,000 feet in the air. The FAA explained that there will be no expansion of the production of MAX airplanes until quality control issues are resolved. That's comforting. They're letting the planes fly, but we're not going to increase the number that are being produced, or we're not going to, I guess create any manufacturer anymore right now well like which one is it there all right that's going to do it uh for today very busy day and hopefully an exciting one and we will see you next time